Welcome to the Level Up Artist Podcast. We are your hosts, Adriana M.A. and Jackie Sanders. We're two art professionals sharing for the advice and business lessons we have learned along our creative journeys. We talk to artists, leaders, and art professionals to demystify the creative process and discover new ways to succeed as a career-minded artist. If you find value in these conversations, please go ahead and subscribe. This will help other creatives like you find our podcast and you'll be notified when we drop a new episode every Tuesday. On today's episode, we are so excited to have Eric Stanley with us. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Great to be here. <laughs> yes, we are looking forward to discussing your creative journey, developing your unique style of work, your professional expansion and your experience with gallery representation, as well as recording a bonus segment on advice for emerging artists about art school for our podcast supporters at levelupartist.com. But real quick, before we dive into those conversations that I know are going to be amazing, let's give a background to our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work. So Eric Stanley gave up on his dream of becoming modernist in favor of maintaining a daily routine of discovery through irrational thought. He sleeps on rare occasion between working in his studio in Blacksburg, Virginia, and contributing his compassionate outlook as an artist and professor of studio art at Virginia Tech. Eric cuts paper using a laser to create a dimension-crossing layered compositions. Thousands of details for each layer are drawn with a gaming mouse using CAD software, the same way keyframe animations are created, only instead of time, he is negotiating space. For Eric, shifting paper's function from 2D platform for information to a seemingly impractical building material for cut 3D compositions is not an act of rebellion, but more accurately reflects his tendency to overcomplicate things a bit. The comp compositions he creates are informed by pattern pattern-based interpretations of intricacy, fragility, and vulnerability shared across all life forms. Eric is represented by L. Bronner of the Charles Moffat Gallery in New York, the Dinner Gallery in New York, and Media Force of Tokyo, Japan. His works are part of the permanent collections of museums in South Korea, Germany, Brazil, and beyond, and to date, he has exhibited in over 130 museums and galleries around the world. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> quite the resume. Quite yeah, the resume. quite the resume. And of course, that is the formal introduction that we do, Eric. But how would you describe your work to someone who has never seen it before? Also keeping in mind that, you know, uh, other artists that are listening to this might be in the car on the way to the studio uh, as they're listening. So how would you describe it in an auditory form? <laughs> I would say first person who would see the work not knowing what it was, that this person has an obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> <laughs> and just lets it fly. Um, and that's pretty much I, how I roll. I mean, I, I like to find the complexity of things. And that's where my mind goes first. It just leaps out ahead. Uh, and I'm already thinking about how something might be valued in a complex form before I even see what it is. Um, so that gets me into trouble a lot of times, you know. Uh, nothing is simple. You know, I have to back up to get the simple stuff. You know? yeah. yeah. And you would say it's like, would you describe it as a, a type of paper sculpture, perhaps, you know, where there's like multi layers and then all these uh, sheets kind of create like multiple colors and shapes, depending how the cutouts are. Would you think that's right. accurate-ish? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right, cool. um, so what's happening is I'm cutting uh, layers of paper and the layers correspond to one another. And as they're stacked, the negative space is sculptural. And that negative space can be occupied by eye only. The work is pretty tiny. 
Um, so when you're looking at this, you can see details that are down to 0 0.01 inches. And then when you back up lately, I've been painting color fields on the wall. So they're about eight by five feet when you, when you back up. But the paper itself are hundreds of layers stacked on one another. Uh, they have, um, you know, where this started, it has a Gothic or Islamic uh, motif, I guess, flavor to it. Um, so that's something that is still lingering in the work today. Yeah, and I can definitely attest to the small, intricate details in your work. Way back when, when I was a student at Virginia Tech, I actually was able to work under Eric, for our listeners who may not know. Um, I still use CO2 lasers in my work today, and a lot of it is due to Eric and being able to apprentice under him for multiple semesters, having him as a mentor, um, and spending several hours in the laser room with a needle poking out shards of small paper in his pieces, because you don't want little loose pieces coming out in the final work, which I absolutely loved every second of it. <laughs> and of course, when our paths crossed, being um, in my undergrad um, and then graduate school, you were well established in your career and even more so then. But I kind of want to go back to the beginning of your creative career, Eric, if you don't mind sharing with us. When did you first become seriously interested in art as a potential career? Um, you know, I, I don't think I ever looked at it like a career. I, I really, as a young person, I looked at it like, well, this is how I want to walk the earth. I mean, um, there was not really a plan to to make a living. It was more of a way to live. Uh, so this is like a five-year-old man mentality that continues today. You know, I don't have a, I don't have like a marketing strategy. I don't have a, a good business sense. I'd say. What I have is just this purpose, this need to function as a studio artist. And so everything I do sort of supports that. So never a decision. It was always sort of, how can I keep this in my life all the time? Definitely love the intentionality of that. It's like, as we talk to artists that are like having that moment of, I've been building this career elsewhere, right? Corporate, day life, whatever it is. And having that wake up call to art, um, that's an interesting way to put it. If like, if that is so important to you, either for self-therapy or maybe I heard this quote this other day um, about Dorothea Tanning, um, of course, a very important modern artist. But basically, it said something along the lines of art is the raft that we climb onto to save our sanity. And I was like, yes, there it is. So it's that idea. I like how you're putting it. It's that idea of like, what can I do to continue to do this in my life? And of course, for all artists, it's different, whether it's that is the main source of income and they have other things or maybe a backup plan of some sort, or they have a job that can support their obsession <laughs> into right. art, um, which in this case, actually, it sounds really practical, Eric. And this is something mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about because I'm thinking, Okay, if it's someone doing oil pastels, let's say, you can get oil pastels at any craft store, but the kind of technology that you're using, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in the tens of thousands of dollars. So it actually makes sense. You know, if you're going through an institution, they can afford the machine that a normal mere mortal probably can't. Unless right. they have a trust fund or something like that, right? But <laughs> it actually makes sense. How can you make this happen? Well, good works for someone that can get you the machine. So that I think that's super smart. I love it. Um, yeah. 
But speaking of technology, can you talk to us about, you know, this experience of using technology um, as both a tool and also as a, a way for you to communicate, you know, the conceptual, you know, part of your work, if you will? Sure. Yeah. So just to backtrack a little bit, I, I cut paper with a laser and I use uh, universal laser systems. I, I'm just addicted. The Virginia Tech, um, they can afford, like you said, some amazing <laughs> equipment, just great machines. And um, I had the experience or uh, sort of the privilege of working with these machines earlier when I was uh, making ends meet as a graphic designer. Uh, I worked as a manager of a CNC um, uh, division of a, of a sign company. And at some point in there, I said, you know, if we got a laser in here, we could really do some business. And to my horror, they they agreed and they said, okay, but we're going to sign you to a two-year contract. So you're going to make that work. So I did it. Um, and I got to pick out the laser and sort of research it. And then I hired people to, to work for me. And there was a profit sharing um, arrangement with this company. It was fantastic. And that, uh, that first machine I got, which was a X-Class ULS, it was a, a beautiful machine. Uh, and I, I liked that over Epilogue for a number of reasons, but one of them was I could take that whole machine apart, so they said, and I found out with three hex keys, like three Allen wrenches. And I think the second day I had it, uh, I took the whole thing apart. I mean, this is a big piece yeah. of equipment. Uh, we had a, we had leased it, so it was like $50,000 and, and I took every part off. <laughs> and like I challenge accepted. Let me see if I can do this. Yeah. Well, I was determined to, I wanted to know uh, exactly how this thing worked. And, and I knew it was engineered really well. And the way this was going to happen was I was going to maintain that machine for this company. So I wanted to make sure I knew it inside and out. So I was already, when you get those machines, they, they're usually pretty tuned up, but you have to tune it up. So I just went, took it way too far. And um, I remember uh, Pete Foster, he, he came down the stairs, he came to my studio space and he wanted to see the new laser and I had it all in parts on the floor, like <laughs> arranged very neatly, you know? And he he came down, he didn't smile. He just He just looked at it, he looked up at me and he turned around, went back upstairs and got his dad, the president. Uh -oh. <laughs> and they came down and they like almost like whispering to each other. And the president, Mr. Foster, is a very kind of distinguished guy with an English accent. Um, and he's a fearless person. And he said in a very proper uh, way, he said, put it together. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at Peter and I was like, this whole thing comes apart with just these six wrenches, and he just shook his head and walked away. <laughs> but honestly, that was... Eric, you're giving me like PTSD flashbacks to the years <laughs> after when I was working at a uh, corporate awards and signage shop after Virginia Tech, and the hours of troubleshooting the machine and balancing parts. And I feel like every time we would do that, I thought back to this story, and I'm like, man, knowing the machine inside and out, that is, I feel like, a huge benefit to any artist, no matter what tool they're using, whether it's color pencil, whether it's paint, whether it's lasers, like that's, I feel like the perfect example of truly aspiring mastery of like, what is this tool? What does it mean? And how does it work? 
Yeah, well, and yes, it's, it's a very literal expansion of all of the pieces, but it's such a physical tool, you know, it plots, it draws. I think it's probably similar to um, a, a race car driver also being a bit of a gearhead and, and yep. taking apart an engine and, you know, just at least knowing how this machine is going to make that person go faster. And I, I think that was my um, compulsion to, to do that. And I got it back together, you know, I benefited from that so much because I was not afraid of any motor, any like any board, like driving the X or the Y axis. I, I knew where everything was and I also knew how to tweak it uh, to, to really, you know, focus it in, you know, dial it in super tight if I needed to. Yeah. So that was my first experience with a laser. And right away, um, and it's a quote I still use today, that those these machines, they're they are answers waiting for a problem. You know, they are, they're just beautiful um, functions of technology that really are only available to us at this point in history. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not the replacement of a pencil or a paintbrush. It, it's not any of that. It's it's here and now, and and we can use this type of technology to really look forward. You know, not solve problems that we've already you know brought up, but discover new things. Yeah. So I I love technology for that. Yeah, I can tell, and it's not just technology. Like you're giving me the vibes of people that I know, including my my spouse, uh, that are mechanically or engineering inclined. Or, or, or that mind thing where it's like they've been building stuff, disassembling and reassembling. Because I know artists that are like, if I were to put something like that apart, I wouldn't know how to put it back together unless there was a manual. So it's like there's also that curiosity that you're bringing into it of like, how does this thing tick? And then it's like, at one point, I used to build computers like PCs, right? And I did disassemble and then I reassembled. But like, for example, now laptops are so complex that if you were to open one, number one, you just voided your warranty once you get past a certain extent and that uh, they're not going to fix it. They're going to make you pay for a whole new one at that point. Right. So it's like that idea of like, how far in do you disassemble and reassemble? But also it comes with that idea of like, you're curious about it, not as in this technology, as this tool that's like a magic box. And I feel for a lot of people, that's how they treat technology. It's like a black box of like mystery. Like, I don't even know how to turn this computer or the computer did this and I have no idea how I did it. And it's like, it's a bunch of one and zeros, you know, um, but it depends. Or some people are like, I want to know how paint is made. So I'm going to go dig for minerals and make my own paint. So it's like, I think it has to do with like what level of curiosity you have and also thinking that. Both of those things are technologies like oil paint is a technology that was invented a long time ago. Right. But it's still a tool. Um, acrylics came out what in the 60s or so around that time. Also a tool or another material. And then a laser, same thing, or a laptop or an iPad. Like they're all there. We're not going to dive into AI, though. We're going to keep that one out. <laughs> it's a whole nother bag of chips. Um, <laughs> we could, we could, if we get time, if we get time, we could go. <laughs> Say, no, we'll, we'll see how we do. We'll yeah. see how we do. Yeah, that, that one can be controversial. <laughs> but I do want to ask you, Eric. So over the years, you've developed many series of work, of course. You know, what did your artwork look like when you began constructing paper sculpture? Like, was there a point? I'm just being curious here. My turn to be curious. Were you doing this with an X-Acto knife, like before the machine was involved? And do you see any tie-throughs from what you were doing then, especially if it was manual to what you're doing now? Uh you know, it all it all seems the same to me, I guess, in, in one way or another. But 
Um, no, no, I would never attempt this stuff with an exacto. Uh, it, none of my work that I'm doing now, um, I, I couldn't even fathom doing this back then. Even when I, you know, worked as a graphic designer, cutting signs and things. I, um, this has evolved into something that is is not just unique, but um, only made possible with photons cutting into paper using high-end optics. Like you can't really you can't really get this accurate with any machine. It has to be a, a very specific lens set to get this tight. Um, there was a moment though. I have a story for you. Jackie's probably heard half these stories. <laughs> Our listeners um, have it. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll give you two stories uh, for this one. So I was in graduate school and I was, I was actually uh, cutting up painting. I, I was making oil paintings and cutting them up. It was a whole, that was like my thesis. And um, I cut these paintings up into bedroom slippers that would sort of, the idea was um, wherever you go in the world, you're walking on gold, you're, you're, you're in the moment. So I, tried to take that literally and put art between me and the earth as I walk. And, uh, and I like the domestic signifier of a, a, a slipper. So that's where my head was at. And I had gone to graduate school doing my thesis work after I was a designer working with lasers. So there was sort of this gap. And so then when I graduated, I just knew I had to teach. That was part of why I went to grad school. I, I love teaching. And uh, so I, I was applying to jobs and um, I was not qualified for Virginia Tech and my wife encouraged me said oh put the put your packet in anyway you'll we'll, let's just see what happens and of course that's the one that that bit right that's, of course that's how it works that's how it works uh so I remember the first interview where you know I come to tech the first time you know Jackie that the campus here is so gorgeous and you're like mm -hmm. I could live yes. here you know it just seems <laughs> too incredible and things were going pretty good I I had I was confident with the work I was doing, but I think what really um, made the difference in the interview is we were walking through uh, the, an old building we don't have anymore where they did sculpture. And there was an X-class universal laser in a small room uh -uh. With, with a coffee pot on it, covered with dust, like it was being used as a table. And I was sort of like walking by and it was like that you walk by and then you back up, you know, and I'm like, is that a ULS? And the people walking me around, they said, yeah, do you know how to use that? <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. I go, let's, let's get it fired up. And they, they're like, are you serious? I said, yeah, let's, do you got a computer for it? And they said, yeah, nobody uses it. So I had the thing running and cutting um, wood at the time, just throwing stuff in there in about 10 minutes. And I could see on their faces, they're like, oh. <laughs> you're like, sold. We have a built-in yeah, stand you're, for this technology. Let's do it. <laughs> you're in. Well, because, you know, in some cases, you have these budgets in a university and things sound like a good idea. Like, oh, yeah, laser, you know, you could cut things. And then there's nobody there to run them, you know, or or they break right away because the, there's not the experience to, to run them accurately. And then you got to pay to have them fixed. So luckily, this one wasn't even run. I think I was like the first person using it. <laughs> and um, yeah, that kind of sealed the deal. Uh, so the second part of this, this sort of story. Um, so I was hired as an assistant professor. 
And at Virginia Tech, because it's an R1 university research uh, first, I decided that, well, I got a job for six years before they kick me out, before they find out that, you know, I shouldn't be here or something, some sort of imposter complex I had back then. Yeah. Whoever and, I tricked into letting me come here, they're going to wise up eventually. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The time. I'm, still, I'm still waiting for them to knock on the door with a clipboard and say, all right, come on, get out of here. Um, so, but I decided like, well, for my tenure track run, my research, I'm going to be an exhibiting artist because like I said earlier, any moment, any stage in my life that I can carve out time and apply my dedication to what I do as an artist, that is gold. That's, that's me living. And this just seemed like an opportunity, like, well, all right, six years, I'm just going to make artwork and I am only going to exhibit it. I'm not going to talk about art pedagogy or, you know, these other ways to uh, bring art into academia to, to get tenured. I'm just going to go for shows. So I knew the laser was available because no one else was using it. And I had been there a couple of years, kind of shell-shocked, like, what am I doing here? And um, I started working with the machine again, and I was cutting up uh, cereal boxes, uh, Cheerios to be specific. And it was just kind of a, a simple conceptual exercise. I was raising the banal. I was like, all right, I look at, I look at the nutritious facts on a cereal box, you know, almost every day. And it, it doesn't change, but it's like this ritual. Like maybe I could lift that up, you know? And uh, I thought, well, I could cut some patterns into that so you could barely read the text and, you know, just sort of see what happens. So I was cutting these things and then it went into other products like uh, butter and, you know, other uh, keeping it kind of um, playful and domestic, these sort of packages. Well, I, you know, I didn't have, I was only using the stuff that I was consuming. And I think that was a part of it. I didn't want to go collect other people's trash. It was just sort of, this is what I consume. And, um, and so I, to practice, I just worked on construction paper or whatever I had laying around. And one time I was leaving and I had just sort of stacked up seven or eight layers of random cuts that I had made. And it just, it was like getting punched in the face. Like, what is that? You know, because I had these layers that were working sometimes with each other and sometimes not. Uh, and there were different colors. It, it had everything that I'm still doing now just in that moment. So it was definitely um, sort of this wake up sort of ping. And immediately in my sketchbook, uh, I had like these just a list of questions like, could I be conscious of the layers? How many layers could it be? Uh, is it paper? Could it be plastic? Could it be wood? How big? How, you know, it just started rolling. Um, and it took about five years, I think, to get to a point where uh, I was ready to, to show that work. Uh, everything else I was doing was getting into shows. There's a bit of kind of a delayed reaction, uh, at least with the shows I get, you get like a year advance notice. And mm -hmm. so there's all this delay, but really about five years, I was like, okay, I have something, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right before, you know, working up to that, I had to figure out not only how to do this and then what was the point of it other than this kind of eye candy. Um, and then I started to, to look at it and understand that this was very much a reflection of how I think these sort of layers, uh, overcomplicated, overthinking everything and the fragility really stole my heart as well just in paper 
paper just stuck because it, it's sort of in contrast to this high-end technology, humble paper. And then you're gonna use these machines and this, all this technology, like $100,000 to cut a piece of paper, uh, construction paper. It just seems so silly that I was like, yes, that's, that's why I'm here. So. Yeah, I feel like the layers of the conceptual elements in your work are kind of unlimited in that regard, right? From a power dynamic, but also from the idea of like the exact precision that can be made with that technology and the organic forms that you're making, right? Like for all of our listeners, both on our Instagram and on our website, we'll share images of Eric's work and of course on his website things. But the amount of detail that you accomplish in your pieces is unreal. And I love how you shared the way that you went from experimenting and playing in your process and how that kind of allowed you to guide to your process now. It, As an artist, I think we can all attest to when you look back to previous pieces that you've made, it makes sense as to like everything makes sense when looking back, it's in a straight line because there's, oh, I was exploring light and shadow in this series. I was exploring technology in this phase of my life. And then you kind of come to these moments where it feels like everything comes together, right? right? There are these conceptual elements that just fit the technology skill, the opportunity to have a laser that no one else knows is even functioning. You're like, I can just use this all on my own. That's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. not thinking too far ahead in advance. I think a lot of the time also as emerging artists, myself guilty of it very much included, you can think too far ahead of, okay, what's 10 years from now? What's five years from now? I need to make my final lifelong style yesterday. And you're like, chill out. You have plenty of time and you're never going to reach a finish line because you're always evolving into it. That's um, very much you, Jackie. Yes. <laughs> but, but, you can go on many of stories. <laughs> but that's, you know, that is your gift. You know, that is, you know, we all have different ways of, uh, processing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and sort of projecting the question, like, what could I be doing? Or what can I bring into the world? And um, I think for me, somewhere along the line, just to pick up on what you're saying, mm -hmm. was to be conscious of um, living in the moment as you, as these things happen. And, you know, I, I say that with um, uh, a, a lot of weight, because my projects, I mean, some of them have taken years. So living in a moment and working on a project for three years, one project uh, is a, it's an interesting experience, you know, but not thinking too far ahead. And in some cases, not even knowing what the thing I'm making is going to look like. Uh, so there's those, those smaller moments. And then there are the bigger ones that, you know, when I get a commission, my my galleries, um, Eli and Celine, they're just fantastic people. But it took a while for them to get used to talking to potential um, patrons and people who are consuming my work. If they want a commission from me that we're going to have a conversation about philosophy and we're going to talk about ideas, but we're not going to talk about what this thing is going to look like when it's done because neither of us are going to know what it is that I will be commissioned to do a work to bring something to life that neither of us has seen yet. Um, so that's, that's a big risk for somebody who's going to drop some money on it. Um, <laughs> but they, they got used to it. They actually, now they're like, it's so much fun selling your work for a commission because of that, mm -hmm. because it takes a certain type of art collector to say, you know what, we're going to do this kind of together. 
And uh, I'm willing to take the risk to bring something into fruition here. And it's going to come from a conversation about, you know, their interests, my interpretations. Nothing's illustrated in my work. Everything is pretty much non-objective. The, the signifiers I'm working with are informing pattern and they're informing color. Uh, the, the sort of functioning almost on a modernist level, like the essence of things. And this is where I share Islamic beliefs with um, sort of a Muslim heritage of, uh, we don't need to redepict something that already exists in the world. God has given us trees. So go look at the trees. Mm -hmm. And if you want an imposter tree, you're, you're not having the same experience. So for me, that's kind of what I'm doing. It's like, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to mediate anything that already exists in the world. I want to bring something into the world that just hasn't been here yet. And so through this process of talking about philosophy and ideas, and then trying to get a signature on a pattern on how that might occupy space, something new is coming into the world, something beyond you know what we could even think of i love those moments yeah and i think because your work is also inherently so conceptual i love the idea especially from a commission or even the work that you make it's really focused on those conversations and belief and experiences first and then of course producing the work and then it has that ripple effect i even the way it's displayed seeing recently in pieces where the wall behind your pieces are painted as part of the display of the piece, part of the piece itself, to where it feels like it's embodied on the wall. It becomes this religious type ceremonial experience mm -hmm. that then has a ripple effect. So it starts with an experience, the creative process happens and has a rippling effect experience for everyone who gets to see it. And I think especially for many of our listeners who kind of going back to our point of not planning too far ahead is just following what brings you joy, what makes you curious and what is sus like sustaining in your creative process with time, it'll happen. Like even hearing now that the style that you've come to develop, you felt like it took a solid five, six years before you felt like it was quote unquote, like presentation ready in a way that you were very confident in is very reassuring. And I'm sure for many artists, because I feel like a lot of the time it can feel like, oh, well, of course, this is the next work in their series. This is the <laughs> obvious evolution of it. But right. of course, from outside looking in, it's obvious to everyone, but the artists ourselves. We're like, where should right. we go? Because we're so in our process that right. that's a good sign if it seems very effortless from the outside looking in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would say it's effortless, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's also, I think, um, and that might be part of my nature. I think, you know, the three of us probably, um, there's there has to be reinvention constantly mm -hmm. that you know I, every time i walk in the studio i'm i'm questioning all the way back you know like does it have to be a laser i mean which drives my wife crazy she's like you're so far in this and now you know i own my own laser you know it's like i don't use virginia tech's equipment anymore i'm it's my all my own stuff so i'm i'm in way deep <laughs> and every day I'm still questioning. I look at it and be like, I don't have to use a laser. <laughs> She's like, we just in installed a new ventilation system. Yeah, you yeah. this laser. <laughs> oh, literally, this this is an addition on my house that is for, for this the lasers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, you can't be afraid to think that way though, as a creative person. 
because that reinvention is what pushes the work. I shouldn't even say it pushes the work. It what's, it's what makes me receptive to what's next in my yeah. life. Uh, it's as if the work already exists. I just have to keep my eyes open and keep myself available to it so that I can, you know, help it come to fruition. Yeah, I absolutely love that idea. And a lot of the things that I'm listening uh, as you're like sharing your experience is that idea of like, I don't know, there, there's a combination. There's like a level of obsession um, that we have to have. And part of that obsession isn't just in the making process, which is important. Part of that obsession too is with remaining curious and also knowing that our number one job as artists is to make problems that then we have to solve. So the moment you're asking that question, does it have to be on a laser? There's the prop, there's the question that has been posed. The answer is yes, but you know, it might be a little more complicated than the yes or no. But even as we're talking about evolving our own art, I'm gonna make this new series of work. Okay, what's gonna make it different? What's different about it? Is it gonna be different colors? I'm gonna change up one of the materials. In your case, am I gonna change the speed that the machine goes on, which might make a different texture on the edge? You know, there's so many variables. It's one of those things where I heard this from another artist that was like, one painting is a million decisions in a canvas, you know? And it applies across any of the disciplines. It's like, what comes next? What comes next? What Even if that's the only question, where, what's the next color? What's the next stroke? What brush am I going to use? How how much strength am I going to put into it? Literally, there's so much into it. So I love that idea of like, for us to make this sustaining and, you know, carry us through the years and to continue to evolve it, we need to ask questions. Because I feel like the moment you don't, either you get bored or your work becomes stagnant. And then all you're doing is repeating the same formula. And it's like, I don't know about y'all. That sounds super mega boring. But I do want to- you're looking to outside sources for direction to guide you, which that that's is a big- very- that's no, a red flag. Yeah, that's right. I can get you into trouble. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that's a conversation. At, at the same time, though, it, it's like I- you never know where you're going to get some important information. You know, yes. You, you know, that's kind of a. Um, Inspiration, um, yes. Replication, no. Right. It, it's it's somewhere between like a, a, a Buddhist thought and a, a, a narcissistic, narcissistic thought. It's this that if you are, as an artist, the center of the universe and you are thinking that your work needs answers, then suddenly anybody you talk to and anything you see potentially could inform that work. So mm-hmm. being that receptive, I, I can't decide if it's narcissistic or if it's like super humble, but um, somewhere in there, I, I'm not afraid to listen to it. It could be my mom, you know, she'd yep. be like, Eric, that sucks. What are you doing? You know? And it's like, oh, shut up, you know? And then like, <laughs> well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe this is some divine message that I have to pay attention to, you know? So it's tricky. It's tricky yeah. stuff. I feel like it might be the idea too of almost like our brain loves to identify patterns and it helps us stay alive, if you will. So it's like, I'm going to use a simple example. You buy a small red car, suddenly you see small red cars everywhere because you post the question to your brain up to a certain extent or expose it to something. And then it's like, oh, I see another one. Oh, I see another one. So I feel like a lot of times for us as artists, especially when someone's talking about feeling stuck, it's like you have to pose the questions. And once you pose that question, go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. And your brain will help you. Like this is what makes us special, right? From the normies is 
we're creative people. This is what we're going to do. Like, we're just going to be like, Ooh, there's the answer right there on the intersection of that street while I was sitting at the red light. And then I saw this car that just went through with this person that had this jacket that had this color, you know, like our brain's like, there's the answer. And it's like, that's so random, but it works. So let's try it. You know? And it's just like, it's just like I said, it's being receptive to the fact that if you pose the question, your brain will help you, your creative energies, your uh, divine guidance, whatever you want to call it, or a combination of all of the above. But your brain's going to help you identify the answers. But you, you got to be open. They might come from some weird sources. It might be the crack on the sidewalk, you know, as you cross the street. You never know. You never know. I don't, I don't think um, a lot of people really get that. That for an artist, you know, every moment is a a decision of faith and doubt, you know, and if you're not having deep faith and, and deep doubt in what you're doing, uh, then something's off, you know, you're mm -hmm. not, you're not on that edge enough. Um, yeah. And I think that's what Jackie was sort of mentioning as well, that, you know, that uh, as soon as something becomes work, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested, you know, yeah. it has to be play, it has to have that risk, it has to be hold as much question that is this right as as it does doubt like this this sucks or this isn't working uh if if i'm not right there all the time then uh I, i'm not in it you know it's, mm -hmm. it's like it's either illustration or I'm, I'm manufacturing something it's something else altogether yeah yeah it still has to have that element of creation which makes a lot of sense now um speaking of eric so how does the the work that you're bringing onto the world, so to speak, influence the type of, let's call them professional opportunities that you go after? Right. So th this was an interesting question because uh, I'm, you know, I'm terrible at marketing. I'm I'm, I'm really bad like self promotion. Um, for me, it's just my enthusiasm for the for the work. Uh, so. I've had to, knowing this of myself, I've had to work with um, people that I, I trust, galleries and people with some integrity that will share their belief in my work. Mm -hmm. uh, so finding people like that has been key to me. And, you know, you mentioned in my bio, I work with uh, a handful of people, but really it's about a, a team of 10 people that sort of do my um, outward facing uh, work. like arranging shows, uh, representing me to potential clients, um, things like that. And then what I do on the side beyond just, you know, being a monk and working in the studio is I'll apply to shows. I still apply to juried shows and things like that because I feel like I constantly need to have this stuff out there. Um, another thing that I'm attracted to about this particular work is even though it's digitally assisted, it's they're one-off things. They are unique physical entities and they document pretty well. They're fun to, to look at the image, but when you see them in person, even though they're static, they're super dynamic. When you move around, you start to see how these layers overlap, how the color sort of shifts depending on what light is getting further back in the work, all these things that really have to do with your physical presence in front of them more so than just seeing it on a screen so having said that um it makes it a bit challenging i mean i get i get a lot of traction just using like instagram and yeah. social media just sort of getting things out but my galleries do so much more 
because they're connected to people who actually want to commission these things. And um, they're the ones who are building relationships with collectors because the collectors see this as very much as they should, a pretty eccentric function. It's like, it's not like retail, uh, you know, I don't know, just sort of making a bunch of things that look cool, you know? So all of that, I can't, I can't really do that. That takes so much energy for me, yeah. especially. I'm very much an extrovert. Um, and it's not that I'd be sapped of energy. It would probably give me more energy. The problem is I would talk to, I would want to talk to those people for like, you know, four hours <laughs> when, when I'm the only one who can make the thing. So I can't, I can't do all of that. Um, so it's tricky because I, I spend a lot of hours in the studio alone and then to charge up you know, my life, I'm like, you know, I need to get out and talk to people because I've been in the studio for so long, you know? So I I really love having my galleries sort of do that kind of thing because they're really good at it. And they also know if they need to, they they will have that uh, set up an interview or I'll go to dinner with them or whatever we'll do, get together. They know that I can, I can talk and I can sort of explain why this is what I do and why they can't just choose colors because it's not how it works. Um, so they trust me and it, it's a great thing. And this is something else that maybe many artists, um, you guys, it's a little different, I think, because you have these outward facing studios right in a complex where collectors can come in. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of doing two or three jobs at the same time. You're yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic to try to balance, for mm -hmm. sure. It's a yep. lot. It's and a not lot. everybody's extroverted like you two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Some yeah, of so us are can... just artroverted, as they say. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can talk about art, but the rest of the time, don't ask me about the weather or sports. I'm, right. I'd rather paint or yeah. sculpt or <laughs> mural or, you know, I'd rather do something else, you know, kind of thing. But it yeah, it's definitely a balance. Yeah, it can be fatiguing to, to just to shift gears like that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I, I definitely feel for you guys. But having said that, I don't, it might be easy for you guys to understand this, but a lot of students, when I talk to them and they they find out that a gallery, um, to, no matter where you are, New York, Paris, or whatever, you know, they're looking at 50 to 60 percent mm -hmm. of that retail price that they're going to sell the work for. Um, for me, it's worth every penny because mm -hmm. I just could not, I could not do it. Um, it's easier to say now because also my galleries have set prices on my work that are ridiculous to me. Like I could never afford my own work, you know, it's, it's <laughs> silly. So I just sort of like roll with that. Like, okay, that's, that's the value, you know, and if they're not looking, I'm like giving the stuff away, but you know, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't do any of us any good because there is a market value that that i'm established yeah so Absolutely. and i think that's an interesting point you talk about of one like recognizing where your strengths are we talked about like introverts versus extroverts where um i think you touched on something great of even though technically you probably could do those things you could network and go to gallery openings and have dinners all the time and your extroverted self would probably love it just talk about you and your work but then also thinking of your creative process as a business of the highest and best use of you is yeah. making the work because someone else can post on social media. Someone else can like a gallery can market your work, but no one else can make your work per se or conceptualize right. these ideas. And 
that's especially as you are growing as an artist. I think that's always the balance you want to strike of, um, I think, especially if people don't have a team necessarily right in the beginning of what's the most essential things that you need to do to get your name out there to market yourself, but also still making sure that you're doing what's ultimately what you're doing is making art. It's that right. fine balance. Yeah. And it's, it's, well, thankfully, it's not only do I enjoy just making the stuff, but it also happens to be the part that I, I could not uh, subcontract that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that gets back to a, like a Daniel Pink uh, sort of mindset that, you know, if you can subcontract anything as a business, then you should. But if you have nothing left, then you don't have anything. You know, so you got to find that unique thing that, you know, where is your value? What can you do that no one else can do and anything else that you can have other people help you with? And you why not? Why wouldn't you do that? So. Exactly. And from having other team members help support you, you mentioned having 10 different people doing different jobs. I am curious from um, lessons or challenges that you faced exhibiting work internationally, being represented by multiple galleries. As the artist, maybe it's more of a logistics question, um, maybe some challenges that you've had with then having to answer to all those people at different times. Like, are they pitching new bodies of work or your, of yours? Is it all existing pieces? Do they, do you know where all of your pieces are at one given point? Like the logistics of your then managing a team that manages you and your artwork. Right. Yeah, it gets a little messy. You know, I would I would love to, you know, say like, oh yeah, it's smooth, like a you know, we're like we're like Amazon over here, you know, just uh, no, it's 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 kind of a mess. But um what what's nice is my my main people, they I've introduced them to each other, they all know each other, there's no competition. Um and Koji, my international person, I actually haven't talked to him in about a year, um, because he's he has been focusing on a couple of other artists that he has and he's been doing great. So once in a while, I'll get a gig that he'll say, all right, Eric, we're going to Dubai or, you know, it'll be something like that. And he knows me now that it's just sort of, if somebody is likes what they see, they like what I'm doing, then that is enough to kind of get something started. And then that interest can we can get into the details after that. Um, the commissions are a little different. I think, uh, as I mentioned, Eli and Celine, they're both in New York City. Um, and they they love those conversations where they're not going to sell a piece that already exists there. I, I, they get excited when it's like, no, no, you can commission a work and you won't know what it looks like until it's until it's done. But once it's done, you're going to recognize it as if you've seen it from the very beginning, because these conversations, where these patterns come from will be everything you've talked to Eric about. So they function really well together, just, just doing that. Marta Hewitt, um, she's in Kentucky. Uh, she sells the existing work. She's pretty good at that. And she was a glass dealer, so she did a lot of glass art and uh, my work, even though it's paper, it sort of fits in. It's sort of this delicate, fragile, and very precise um, kind of thing. So her clients kind of share an aesthetic that um, she's able to, to sell existing work. So yeah, a little story. Um, 
I just installed some work this weekend in um, Knoxville. Uh, Knoxville is doing amazing things. It's a city that is uh, quite devoted to the arts uh, the past five years or so. They sort of reinvented themselves around the arts and it's, um, it's kind of exciting to see. So anyway, I'm in the Dogwood Regional Show there, which has gotten like to be a big deal. And they got some installations. And one of the pieces, um, the paper cut piece of the installation, uh, I was pretty sure I had. I was like, oh yeah, I have this piece. And then, you know, I'm gonna make this installation. We'll paint the wall. It's gonna be fabulous. And they're like, oh yeah, great, let's do it. And uh, I think it was like last, last week or so, um, I got my daughter. I said, well, we have to go to my office to pick up. Jackie, my office is now like my storage room. Nice. It's like oh my it's goodness. boxes and stuff of all my artwork. <laughs> so I went to my office and I couldn't find it. And I'm like, what the hell? Where the hell is this thing? And so I I couldn't, it, I've, I've just been too scrambled with things. I don't have like the inventory in my mind. I just, I'm like, yeah, just it's, it must be in my office. Uh -oh. And so I started looking, you know, I have some records that I keep and I found it. It was in Uzbekistan. <laughs> It's on loan to the Arts and Embassy program. So like, it's not in your office. You know, it's like, for like four years. And I'm Whoops. like, oh my God, you know. And I committed to this, this show and I'm like, oh, but I love this so much. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> so I I looked it up on my computer, like, you know, it's like 144 layers. And oh, I'm boy. looking at it and I'm like, I could redo this, but I could do it. I could do it in a way that is more conducive to this project. Like I'll change some colors. I redrew like a dozen. I was just, it was so stupid, you know, <laughs> but, but it was one of those moments where like, this also could be kind of this divine intervention. Like uh -oh. now we're taking the thing away. Are you willing to jump in and recut it, remake it? And then while you're remaking it, like change it in a short period of time, like, you know, which included a lot of gold leaf and, you know, a lot of things that um, are a little bit time consuming. So I went for it. I was like, oh, yeah. of course you did. It's like remixing it. a song. You're like 90% yeah. exactly. of it's the same as the original, but a little flair here, a little upgrade exactly. here, exactly. more of a vocal range here. And then, I mean, I couldn't do the, the frame of the original was part of the piece. It was like a Every layer of paper in the original, the they had a four-sided deckle edge and it stepped out. Oh boy. Uh, almost like a pyramid. Um, it's quite beautiful. And I knew I couldn't do that because I remember that took like two months just to get all of that. Like, well, no, that's that's off the table. Um, so I readjusted how the thing was contained, but it worked out because the the piece, I think I sent you guys images. It's called Vanquish Ascended. It's sort of this. A uh, star kind of piece, and ended up being. I made it really big too. It's about nice. uh, I don't know nine feet by nine, you know it's huge, and then in the, it just steps into the middle, and then the paper cuts are like 144 layers in the middle. So yeah, it gets messy, like <laughs> knowing where my stuff is, and and then like it, it was like kind of a laughing moment too. It's like it's in Uzbekistan, at a, you know, you know, at, at an embassy. <laughs> And then I like suddenly feel proud, like, oh yeah, that's so great, you know. And then then having to reconcile with, well, I'm kind of double booked the thing, and what am I going to do? Um, challenge accepted. Challenge yeah, challenge accepted. accepted. And it is an advantage, I suppose, with technology that I don't usually 
I don't usually take advantage of that. I usually make a, one thing, it's a physical entity, and then it's hand assembled like differently each time, especially like gold leaf or watercolor or how it's displayed. Mm -hmm. um, so this time I let, I let myself rely on that technology to recut, mm -hmm. knowing that my hand would be in involved to change it in a different way. Like, and it's true, it came out as probably other than the pattern, you'd barely recognize that it was had anything to do with the other piece. Um, so yeah, that sometimes things like that work out. So yeah, yeah, they do. And sometimes there's nothing like a deadline to make an artist go, um, <laughs> it's almost like suddenly, you know, the in-laws are coming and, you're already gonna clean the place. and you had yeah. no idea, but they're already like entering the neighborhood when you find out and you're opening the pantry, opening the fridge, opening the cabinets and going, what can I make last minute? Because I wasn't planning on a dinner for four. You know what I mean? Right, I feel like right. for us artists, sometimes too, life can get in the way a lot. And when a deadline like that comes up, it's like, how easy can we adjust? Uh, I guess we're having uh, groceries delivered and this thing's Amazon and this thing's that oh. because I have this deadline coming and now I can move aside all these other appointments and actually get it done. And right, yeah, what's, like, what's wrong with us? You know, yeah. that we <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is good because we also need that time for making and then the time for refilling the tank. Right. But yeah. it can be easy to just refill, refill, refill and not make as much if other stuff's getting in the way. But then when a <laughs> deadline like that comes up, that's when you're just like rolling up your sleeves and what's actually negotiable in your life and, and, and right. scheduling wise. Right. And it's, I don't know. I feel like that's an eye opening exercise, but uh, that actually wants to lead me into the next question. One of the things we like to ask everybody is regarding how they define success, but first <laughs> we're going to put in a quick word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by our level of artists podcast supporters. If you have gotten value out of listening to our podcast, please consider becoming a supporter for $4 a month. This podcast is our way of sharing it forward and we get so much value out of these conversations ourselves, but producing a podcast isn't free. We have personally invested in podcast equipment and video editing software, as well as dedicate our time to produce, edit, and distribute a new episode every week. By becoming a podcast supporter, you will help us keep the podcast running smoothly and get access to amazing off-the-record conversations with seasoned artists, authors, art collectors, gallery and museum professionals, as well as industry leaders. These conversations offer even more valuable advice for artists at various stages of their career. You also get access to our artist community platform and our gratitude for keeping the podcast going. Head on over to leveluparticshub.com to sign up and become a podcast supporter today. So welcome back, everybody. So Eric, a question we'd love to ask everybody is how do you define success as an artist and professional? So success for me is knowing that I actually have the time to dedicate myself to my practice. I mean, it's it's very much about purpose for me. And giving my life purpose as an artist has been, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost, it's it's not a secular act. It's uh, not specifically religious, but it is a bit fanatical. Um, so spiritual. truly spiritual, spiritual is a way. I think that's sort of a Leonard Cohen kind of way of looking at it, where he said his music was a spiritual quest all the time. And I, I definitely can relate to that. So yeah, success for me is knowing that every day I can get up at five in the morning or six in the morning and get about three hours in uh, before anyone else is awake in my house. And uh, 
that that is how I want to live. Um, I don't measure things by sales or money, uh, getting rejected or overlooked at a, say like a paper show or something like that is always disappointing. But at the same time, I'm like, well, they just, you know, it wasn't the right time. Or, you know, I try not to take responsibility for how other people are viewing my work when all I can do is just make the stuff. And so I try to focus on that. I love that. So now thinking back to the start of your creative journey, what is one piece of advice you had wish you had heard before you got started? That you don't have to know what you're doing. Um, and I, I say that not just to be flippant, but, you know, when I was younger, especially when I was in undergrad, uh, my professors, they looked like they knew exactly what they were doing. And they sort of had that, um, I don't know, that air about them, like, uh, this is the way you do You know, they were so confident, you know. Come to find out, that was really bullshit. You know, it was sort of like, <laughs> that was them probably talking to themselves, you know, like trying to reinforce, uh, trying to find their own faith in their work and, and projecting it outwardly. So yeah, you know, um, I don't know what the hell I'm doing most of the time. And it feels pretty good. Uh, if, and if I do know something, if I get too reliant on something, that's why I say, you know, question the laser at any step of the game. You know, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but this particular technique and medium that I'm working with, it continues to support so many ideas for me that it's it's not I'm not done yet. Um, so I don't know where it's going. I don't know what my work often is going to look like until it's done. And if I had an artist or a mentor back when I was, I don't know, a cocky 18 year old. <laughs> I would have loved for somebody to say, you know what, if if you don't know what you're doing, you're on the right path. <laughs> because I definitely tried to pretend like I knew what I was doing. And, and that was futile. It was it was a lie, really. <laughs> <laughs> a hope, a plan and not necessarily executable. But that's no. OK. We, we've heard from artists that talk about like that idea of being naive about it. And then just going with it and just seeing what happens. Uh, there's an artist we interviewed recently who basically said something along the lines of like, I went for X in this case in our career because nobody told me I couldn't, which is not everybody's experience. And I feel like with these different art mediums and things we're exploring in these careers that we're trying to uh basically sustain, you know, through our lifetimes, it's that even if somebody is saying no, we have to have enough confidence in ourselves and in our curiosity to pursue that art to be like, la, la, la. Yeah, thank you. Goodbye. Um, I'm going to do my own thing. And I, I have questions I need answers to. And you're coming from it kind of like tying back to what you just said. It's not so much about them, you know, and they're like how they see it. The only thing you really have control over is how you see it and where you want to go, not getting too far ahead of yourself, of course, but kind of like asking what's the next thing, what's the next thing. And then just keeping kind of like the blinders on almost to a certain extent, only looking sideways when you need to feed that inspiration tank. But the rest of the time, you're just like, you know, like I have a goal, you know, and, and this is where I want to get to. And if I detour too much, I'll never get the answer to my question. So I just, I just have to keep going. I love yeah. that. I absolutely love I that. It, yeah. Probably, this might go back to when Jackie was uh, working, you know, back at Virginia Tech. Nice. Um, I can't really, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who will typically give you a straight answer. 
um, because I don't, I do a lot of oppositional thinking uh, in my creative practice that every decision I make, at least the bigger ones, whether it be color or sort of the overall structure, at some point I had asked myself, what is the opposite of this right now? Just in case, just in case I'm locking into something that uh, I'm, I'm doing it out of convenience. And, and I ask myself, what's the opposite? And when the opposite is attractive, I'll, I'll go for it, you know, and sort of like have this sort of grin on my face, like, okay, here we go. You know, I really don't know where I'm going. And then other times when the opposite is like, you know, doesn't make that much of a difference, or it's sort of, it doesn't have anything to do, then it, it sort of gives me the confidence to move forward with that thing. But I do that a lot. And, and I know I do it when I teach, when people, you know, as a professor, they're asking me for answers. And I'm like, I usually answer with a question or a story. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to be like a confident, like you must do it this way. You know, it's yeah, it's which I ridiculous. can attest being <laughs> one of the students that had you as a mentor, which at the time was the most frustrating thing for a personality like mine. I'm like, I am just seeking approval. I want a straightforward answer, very type A. Some things have not changed. Be right. like, well, I don't know. Could it be this way? I'm like, please just tell me yes or no. Well, and that's <laughs> actually. That I say, looking back like of that. like my developing as an artist, I found that to be such a valuable skill though. And one okay. that I always attribute mm -hmm. to the time that we had together of talking about my work, critiquing my work and becoming more of a self-reliant artist. And that I love critique groups now and I love getting feedback and having a public facing studio where even if a work is in progress and it's not ready for people to make comments on it, you can only hide it so many places. You can only have so many canvases turned around and be like, please comment on those. Don't comment on these. Like people give their feedback, even when you don't ask for it. And I think that really toughened my skin of allowing myself to let things in one ear, out the other, and pose those questions for myself rather than looking at any praise on a high pedestal or any right. criticism on a high pedestal. It's kind of you treat the highest praise and the biggest criticism on the same mark because right. you're just self-reliant as a artist, which I think was one thing that you really taught me how to do. So thank you. Yep. yep. Don't I'll give them the fish. Teach them how to fish, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's good because it's like kind of like tying back to something we said earlier. It's like you have to ask the questions. Otherwise, you will become stagnant. And then you'll be like, I don't know what to paint next. And honestly, for a lot of us, the problem is I have too many ideas and not enough time. Like I can never run out. And I think yeah. like once artists unlock the oh, it's the the constant questioning that just feeds the engine, then it's endless. You're right. welcome. <laughs> another, it's another trap, though, is an artist, animator, musician. You know, sometimes you get, you find success in something, and then you're like somehow gravitating back toward that because mm -hmm. you got praise or it led to something that mm -hmm. sort of success in a different way, a business success or a, a praise, a ego success, whatever it might have been. And those kind of trappings are, for me, big red flags. Like, yep. And of course, I, I'm probably like the artist that everyone would accuse. It's like, well, all your stuff looks the same. What are you talking about? <laughs> but for me, each one is, is like a completely different story. It's a, it's a totally different thing. Um, and, and that's just, it's crucial for me to, to kind of live that way. Yeah. Plus, there's a big difference between cohesive and what's the other word? Uh, when people are like iterating back on the same thing, there, there's a word on it, rehashed, remixed, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Re what is it? 
one hit wonder. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Like we've all heard those bands where it's like you listen to the album from 2010, from yeah. 2000, from today, and they're just repeating the same formula over. And you're just like, so you're just basically remixing your own stuff. Like you're not, that's what we were talking earlier. Like you got to keep that question to then bring that question. Like you got to go deeper. You can't just stay surface level and repeat because then you right. become stagnant. And that's like, eh. So why would I go to that concert? Sounds the same. Like yeah. <laughs> different that's definitely, that's definitely an experience that we've talked about a lot on the podcast um, with other artists, but even just episodes that Adriana and I and I share after um, college, after my senior show, having a huge creative burnout because I was doing crazy hours in the studio, going a million miles a minute, doing all the things, as you may remember, Eric. Of, um, but then when I wanted to come back to my creative practice, to your point, I was like, oh, let me go back to what I had done four years ago. And I really tried to make work similar to the work I had been making. And I'm like, the energy is not there. Like the energy is lost. My process feels so different. Um, but I think to your point, then when I was experimenting and playing in what for me felt like a total deviation of my work, like it felt very exposing, it felt totally new to anyone else's eye. They're like, that's very clearly your work. Like it's very obviously you and how we can't really get away from ourselves in our creative process, even when it feels like this huge deviation and right. this other series may feel like a comfort zone. They're like, no, this is the natural evolution of it which is just part of that creative cycle. Yeah. I know you're, you're reminding me of why it's good to have um, highly trusted artist friends because they're the ones that go, uh, obviously to you, like what is, yeah. it's not a great deviation. Like keep going, you're on the right track. I can still tell it to you. It's all right. Now go <laughs> back to work. Yeah. <laughs> well, a little bit of that. <laughs> it is crucial for artists to keep a, like a sketchbook for that very reason. You know, I look back in my sketchbooks and I'll I'll see things that I didn't make and I'll be like, geez, that that was such a good idea, you know, but I just either didn't have the the headset for it or the time. I don't know what it was. So sometimes we're just not ready to to make things. Like we don't even recognize um their value when we stumble on it. And if you have the ability to kind of go back and look at that and say, well, wait a minute. I was on to something, but I wasn't ready to, to see it at that moment. Yeah. Those are big, those are big things too. Yeah, yeah. to yeah. your point, and we could go down memory lane for another two hours, but before we wrap it up, I was looking through my sketchbooks in preparation for this interview from your class from freshman year. And then fast forward, what, 10 years now, nine? <laughs> Literally, there was a piece I made last year that you would have thought I made this sketch two days before I made this artwork. And I haven't looked at my sketchbook <laughs> since then. And I was like, holy moly, what is happening? Where it was a off the fringe idea from our like studio class. And then 10 years later, it's up in my studio. I'm like, that's weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, very you, strange. You know, you and a handful of others, you know, working from your heart, like you said, you, you can't, get away from yourself. And if you're willing to go that close to home, then yeah, I, I can see it. It probably things things will look the same because you we've got to work through our own, not just attractions, but experiences, fears, you know, all of our shadow selves. We've got to confront all that business. Yep. Hey, it's a language and we all have our own unique language. So it's a matter of seeing how to sometimes we don't have the words for it, if you will. And it takes it takes a while, but 
Um, one of the other questions we like to ask everybody, see what I did there. <laughs> um, if someone randomly hands you a hundred bucks, what would you splurge on or invest in? It has to be something that brings you joy and relates to your art or business. Uh, you know, I'd probably say food. Um, <laughs> and then I would, uh, then I would have to backtrack on how that relates. But honestly, yeah, if it were like a hundred bucks, it'd be like, all right, let's, Let's go get sushi, you know, um, nice or something. I think um, for something that spontaneous to kind of come into my lap, um, I, I like those moments, like when you're you're eating something new, or you you go to a restaurant that you haven't been to, or you see a band that you haven't seen before. Kind of getting yourself into positions where. Um, you're, you're witnessing something or tasting something for the first time. Um, those are those are like amazing moments. And sometimes it only takes a hundred bucks, you know? It's like, it's nothing. Uh, and sometimes those things can even change your life. You know, they can inform you quite deeply. So. Yeah, love it. There you go. <laughs> and everyone needs studio fuel too. The sushi is always good. <laughs> yeah, sushi yep. is good. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Real quick, before we let you go, dive into your studio work. How can our listeners stay connected with you after listening to today's episode? So if you want to see my process, um, you, you can go to my Instagram account. If you follow me on Instagram, that's where I'm always showing what I'm doing. And I I treat it just like a little window, kind of like you guys had, a little window to my studio. So if I'm doing an install, I'm doing a new work, uh, that's where it's going to be. Um, my website is a bit more, I, I guess you'd say polished, um, because that is outward facing to collectors and, and things. So I keep that one. I, I wouldn't say it's well behaved in, in its language and everything, but it is a bit more formal. Uh, so those are two ways you can see my my stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's excellent. Um, we'll be sure to link uh, the website, social media, all those things uh, in the show notes uh, for this episode. And Eric, would you mind staying with us a few extra minutes so we can discuss advice for emerging artists about art school for the bonus segment sure. for our podcast supporters? Actually, if we're doing our final plugs, you know, there are, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in two shows right now that yes. if you're in these areas, uh, because again, like seeing the, the work on the screen is, is fun, but seeing it in person is a whole other experience. Uh, I'm in a fantastic show called The Possibilities of Paper at uh, Christopher Newport University. It's the uh, Tordler uh, Museum, and it is fantastic. I, I had no idea that this place existed, but it's right there in Newport News, Virginia, and it is a colossal museum space and they had collected the curator was super sharp uh she collected um i think there are 12 of us uh, we all know each other it was kind of like a paper artist reunion really nice we've all exhibited with each other all over the place um somehow she tracked us all down and uh, put together this fabulous show so go see that that's up until october nice. uh, the dogwood regional i just put up three new installations there so if you're in knoxville uh, that's going in. And next year, I have a solo at the William King Museum in Virginia and uh, a really big group show at the Canoe Museum in Bahrain. Um, so if you happen to be in the Middle East, that I'll be <laughs> over there. And it's either 2024 or 25. I'm not, I'm not sure. That'll be a big one, though. 
That is so cool. Well, that means listeners uh, or folks on YouTube, make sure to follow Eric on social media. And if you have a newsletter, go ahead and sign up to his newsletter so you can stay in the know of all this exciting stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing some of these things. Uh, if I can make my way up to Virginia, we'll see. Um, but yes, awesome. In the meantime, um, you know, for our listeners, if you want to stay connected with us between episodes, share your feedback, or you have a question you would like for us to answer on the podcast, you can reach us through social media. I'm at May Art across all platforms. And I'm at J Sanders Studio on all platforms. And if you want to follow the podcast, we are at Level Up Artists on Instagram. You can also visit leveluparticshub.com to hear the rest of this conversation and become one of our podcast supporters. Yep. And with this, you'll get access to amazing off-the-record conversations with our guests, the artist community platform, and you'll help keep the podcast going. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.